Hello and thank you for joining us on Search for Truth. I'm your host, John Martin, and I'm here with your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston. This week we have the second talk in our new series called Great Spiritual Movements. The Bible is actually a library of 66 books written by 44 authors over a period of about 1500 years. The 39 books of the Old Testament were composed between about 1400 and 400 BC, and the 27 books of the New Testament between AD 50 and AD 100. It's absolutely amazing to see how all the scriptures hold together and there is a cohesive integrity throughout, which, of course, points to a single influence over it all. And the scripture which tells this is Second uh, Peter 1 verse 21, which Brian refers to later on in his talk. But now, let's go to Brian and see how God's Spirit moved these Bible writers. Thank you, John. Yes, some so-called superfoods are reported to have a beneficial effect on our memory. Blueberries and walnuts are among some of those fruits and nuts that are singled out. One testimonial by a lawyer describes how his 82-year-old mother had lost the ability to recognise him. But after switching to a diet rich in fruit and nuts, she had regained the memory of who he was and could relate to him again. As we all get older, we face the distinct possibility, if not the inevitability, that our power of recall is going to significantly reduce. And it does seem as if the Apostle Paul had a brief memory lapse that gets recorded in the first chapter of his Bible letter to the Corinthian church. It happened as he was trying to recall any believers at Corinth whom he'd personally baptised. Allow me to read from verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14. I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptised in my name. Now, I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised any other. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. It seems as if the apostle remembered only the names of Crispus and Gaius as having been baptised by him. But then it suddenly came to him that he'd also baptised members of Stephanus' household. There's nothing special about that kind of momentary forgetfulness, just a slip of the mind, and quickly corrected. Except this forms part of Holy Writ. Christians believe all of the Bible was inspired by God. When writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul himself declares this very thing. He said, all scripture is inspired of God, or God breathed. Some people have the wrong idea that the human authors of the Bible acted exactly like dictating machines, in the sense that they wrote down word for word what the Spirit of God told them to write. Now, the trouble with that idea is that Peter and Paul, for example, had different writing styles. If they were simply acting like machines, then we'd expect there to be no difference in their styles. What's more, the different writers had their own favourite words and phrases. And now here's Paul, at the beginning of his Corinthian letter, evidencing a very typical human trait, namely an initial, short-lived slip of the mind. This indicates that it was more a case of the Holy Spirit supervising the words selected by the human authors, while at the same time accommodating to each human author's personal style and idiosyncrasies. 
The way the Bible puts it is that God's Spirit moved the Bible writers. Here's what the Apostle Peter wrote in the first chapter of his second Bible letter. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And now verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. In one other place, the same word is used when describing a sailing ship being driven by the wind. Try to picture a yacht with the wind filling its sails and moving it through the water. That's the idea of God's Spirit moving the human Bible authors. This means the Bible has both a human and a divine nature. One preacher, R. A. Torrey, put it this way. He said, suppose stones for a temple were being brought from quarries in Rutland, Vermont, Berea, Ohio, Casota, Minnesota, Middleton and Connecticut. Each stone was first hewn into its final shape at its own quarry before being transported to the actual temple site. Among the stones was a great variety of shapes and sizes, like cubes and cylinders. But when they were all brought together, it turned out that every stone fitted perfectly into its allotted place. What would that show, he asked? It would show, Torrey said, that at the back of all these individual quarry workers was a single architectural mastermind. Then he said, it's exactly like that with God's temple of truth, the Bible. How else could some 40 different human authors contribute to this one vast project spanning some 1600 years from start to completion? The marvellous cohesion, the wonderful consistency of the Bible with its focus on the central picture of Christ can only mean one thing, that behind all those individual human authors there stands one divine author who masterminded the Bible as his communication to this world. What's more, the Bible contains many predictions originating with God's Spirit who so moved those human authors. In fact, it's been estimated that at the time of writing, about 25% of the Bible was prophecy. In other words, claims about the future. Now, anyone can make predictions, but having those prophecies fulfilled is something else. What's the chance, for example, of predicting in which city some future world leader is going to be born? Or the exact way in which he's going to meet his death? But this is what the Bible did, hundreds of years in advance of the events. The late Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, Peter Stoner, actually calculated the chance, that is the probability, of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made in advance in the Bible about the Messiah, Jesus. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes, which amounted to some 600 university students. Professor Stoner also encouraged other sceptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. For example, concerning Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Professor Stoner and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of the prophet Micah right through to the present time. And then they divided it by the average world population over exactly the same period. By expressing that ratio, 
they calculated that the chance of one particular man being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000, in the same sense as the chance of getting heads in any one flipping of a coin is one in two. Then they examined not one, but eight different Bible prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. The likelihood of them all being true by chance was found to be so small that we'll have to describe it by means of an illustration. If you make a mark on one out of ten tickets and then place all the tickets in a hat and stir them thoroughly and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the one ticket which you've marked is one in ten. Now suppose that instead of tickets we take small silver coins and not just ten of them but we take a very large number of coins. Next, let's suppose we lay all these silver coins all over the state of Texas in the US until we cover the whole of that state to a depth of two feet or in other words to a depth of about 60 centimetres. Now once again, let's mark just one out of all those silver coins and stir the whole lot of them thoroughly all over the state of Texas. By the way, you may be interested to know that Texas is almost three times the size of the United Kingdom. Once again, we're going to blindfold the man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes within Texas, but he must pick up just one silver coin and hope that the very first one he picks up is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? The answer is a number that is one in a one followed by 17 zeros. Just the same chance Professor Stoner worked out that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, provided they wrote them in their own wisdom alone, assuming God had nothing to do with the Bible. But of course, there are many more than even eight prophecies. One Bible expert reckons there were actually up to 456 different prophecies available for Professor Stoner to select from had he so wished. Obviously, the chance of all this being pure coincidence is vanishingly small. We should point out that no originals of any ancient literary work remain to this day. We have some ten copies of Caesar's report of his Gallic Wars, and they date to 1,000 years after the events they describe. However, there's little or no dispute that these writings are the real deal. Now compare this situation with the case of the New Testament. Thousands of manuscript copies dating back to a mere 100 years or so after the events they describe in the New Testament are found. If the authenticity of any piece of ancient literature is to be judged acceptable, then it must be the Bible. And with all those manuscript copies available for cross-checking, practically all human copying errors can be identified and the correct option selected from among the manuscript copies. It all points to the confidence we can have in our modern Bible as accurately representing what God himself conveyed as his spirit moved the human authors. This should encourage us not to doubt the Bible nor compromise by saying that it merely contains God's word. It is God's word for us. All of it is God's word for us. And it should be read normally, reading the plain meaning out from the Bible text itself and not reading our own desired meanings into it. 
no Bible verse can mean something that denies what it first meant to its original readers or hearers. It must at least be consistent with it. The true meaning we seek is to be determined by its biblical context. May God's Spirit move in our hearts to give due attention to God's timeless Word, the Bible. Our current book, entitled Great Spiritual Movements, contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series. It's available on request, and if you'd like a copy, just write in by post or email. We'd also be pleased to hear any comments or questions you might have after listening today. And I'll be giving you the contact details shortly if you've a pen and paper to hand. And did you know as well, the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet in audio or text format. To obtain the book, though, simply ask for Great Spiritual Movements, and you can do this by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon SN4 8DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info And also look out for Search for Truth featuring on www.twr360.org And this will give you another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here uh, on air. So that's almost all I have to say except thanks for being with us and the pleasure of your company. I hope you'll join us next week to hear about how the Spirit moved the child in the womb, which is referred to in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Until then, it's very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, uh, John. So cheerio and as always, may God richly bless you.